more I look at it, study it, meditate on it, read about it, the more I'm convinced that it's so relevant to living hope and all of us here. And Nathan's testimony kind of affirmed that again. I, I love how Nathan talked about <clears throat> how he knew God wanted him to go, but he didn't want to go. He made excuses. And once there even, although he was obedient, although he was doing the right things, that there are still times of disconnect from uh, what God wanted for him and how he felt about it. That there were days when he would uh, be in his room and cry or times when he says, gosh, I, I just don't know if I want to be here. When I think about the living hope culture, <clears throat> a lot of the people that I see in this room, I don't see all the majority of you not knowing what God wants for you. I think most of us, we do. I don't see a room where we have, we're filled with people who are not being obedient to God's will. Uh, I see a room filled with people who are extremely responsible, dutiful, and in, in a way, um, relatively speaking, good. But what I see is this, that a lot of us, even while we are doing the right thing, there's a disconnect from doing and what we feel inside. And we still oftentimes continue to do the right thing, but with bitterness, resentment, a burnt out feeling, wondering why am I doing this? And I think this is um, the message of Jonah. It would be something like this. Think of Jonah as a pastor who week in and week out, he preaches, he, he leads a church, and the church is growing. People are, are being saved, and it's growing. But internal, internally, there's a, a wrestling, a struggle, a tension, because he really doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want to preach to these people. He doesn't like them. And that's the story of Jonah, and it is a, a fascinating story. It's something that we can relate to. Let me give a, a quick bit of review on chapter 1. Uh, God called this unremarkable prophet to go and preach the, um, a message to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the, the Assyrians, and they were known to be an extremely cruel uh, empire, and, and they would eventually overtake uh, Jonah's home country. He, instead of being obedient, gets up and goes the other way. He flees, gets on the ship. Uh, the Lord chases after him through a storm. Uh, the crew panics. They pray. They get him to pray, but he won't. And he eventually says, you need to throw me overboard. So he, they throw him overboard. And so the last scene is Jonah in the middle of the ocean and the crew uh, praising God. And if we aren't familiar with the story of Jonah, we think that's the end. And the moral of the story is, if you're disobedient to God, the wages of the sin is death. That's how we would normally end the story. Uh, but like a bad Avengers movie, after the credit, there's a scene, a post-credit scene. Uh, the enemy's not dead, you know, or something. Um, and so... We see in chapter 1, verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So uh, we thought that he was dead, but he's not. God sends a fish. 
a great fish and it swallows him up and he's alive for three days and three nights in the belly. We love the story because we learned it in Sunday school. It's great visuals. Uh, but it is also the point which a lot of critics uh, point to and say, well, we know that jo- the story of Jonah and the whale is fiction. It's not real because of this particular verse. And so uh, before I continue, let me uh, debunk a couple of uh, the criticisms. Number one, a lot of critics say that this can't be real because a whale is not a fish. Have you heard that argument? A whale is not a fish. That's their argument. Um, And so technically, scientifically, whales are classified as uh, sea-dwelling mammals, right? We kind of know that from elementary school. And so they say, well, the Bible's wrong because Jonah and the whips, it's wrong. It's not science. Well, in chapter 1, verse 17, in Hebrew, it says that God appointed a dag gadol, which is a great fish and not a great whale. And when Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 refers to this incident, uh, the Greek word that is used is ketos, which is a sea monster. In the 1611 translation of the Bible, the King James Version, uh, the interpreters used the word whale in Matthew. And so, but I want to be clear that the Bible in its original language never referred to that creature as a whale. Does that make sense? Okay. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't a whale. And the reason being is this. That when Jonah rode, or when the ancients rode, um, creatures that dwelt in the sea and swam around, they classified all of them as fish. It is just modern science that decided to distinguish like the dolphins and whales from the fish. And so it could be a fish, it doesn't have to be a fish, but it's, that's not a valid criticism of the story. All right? Now, the second criticism of this particular story is this. Is it plausible that a man can be swallowed up by a sea creature and be alive three days later. Okay, so my, uh, a show that I used to watch, I used to love it, is a show called Mythbuster, for those of you who are science geeks, Mythbusters, right? And they would take these old scenarios and say, hey, is it true, can they prove it, etc." So uh, Mythbuster uh, theory, can a man be swallowed up by a sea creature and survive for three days, all right? Now, there's so many things going against it um, uh, from, the, from the entrance where uh, whales have sharp teeth or whatever large creatures would. The esophagus, the, the, the throat, uh, would be too small for most human beings to pass through. Um, a sperm whale would have four stomachs and filled with acid that would literally burn the, the person alive. And I think the most troubling thing that, that I think is a lack of oxygen. So you would, you would suffocate. Um, and so far as I'm concerned, and, and me being your pastor, but a former engineer, if I was to just use scientific reasoning, I would say it's busted. That it is implausible or impossible that a man could be swallowed up by a sea creature and survive three days. By the way, even if it's three days in Eastern counting, Eastern counting um, 
uh, counts this way. If it goes from Friday to Sunday, they're, con they're considered three days. It doesn't have to be 72 hours. So Friday at 11.59 p.m. to Sunday morning, like 1 a.m., that's considered three days, right? And so, um, but even if it's only like 24 hours and two minutes, is it plausible? I would say scientifically, no. But if God can create the universe out of nothing, if God could um, gather two, two of every kind of animals and put them on a ship, if God could have a woman who's way past menopause to bear a child, if God could turn water into uh, blood, if God could uh, uh, gather manna daily uh, only to have it rot 24 hours later, un unless it's a Sabbath, if God could... Uh, have a virgin conceive a child, if God could have a man be resurrected from the dead, I do not think it is impossible, if God is involved, for God to create and command as he wishes. It is not difficult for me to accept that God could have created a creature or, or sent a creature with a swim bladder. It is, what's, it is something that some fishes have. It's a, a pocket which uh, is filled with some sort of a, a air or oxygen which keeps buoyancy in the fish. Uh, and, and, and a man uh, utilized that to survive for a, a period of time. I do not think it's impossible if the impossible God is involved. So I want that out of the way. And then we're going to continue in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Jonah chapter 2? Jonah chapter 2. Like I said last week, what is unusual about this prophetic book is it's not a sermon manuscript, but it is the internal wrestlings of the prophet. And so chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, the 10, is his prayer. And this is his wrestling prayer, the turning point prayer. And let me read it from the ESB version. If you don't have it, uh, it is up on the screen for you. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever yet you brought up my life from the pit O Lord my God when my life was fainting away I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Chapter 2 is kind of divided up into two, and I, or at least I'm going to, praying from the depths and praying to the heights. Um, God sends a calling and Jonah flees. God sends a storm and Jonah is thrown into the water. God sends a fish, and Jonah, it says in chapter 2, first three words are, then Jonah prayed. Then Jonah prayed. It is only when this all happened, then Jonah 
prayed, do you realize that all throughout chapter 1, this prophet of God did not pray? Let me tell you all the instances when he did not pray. God commanded uh, this prophet, this one who had spent time in the presence of God, one who had been faithfully serving God, and one who had heard clearly the voice of God, God told him to go and preach. And he doesn't necessarily pray back in obedience, nor does he even pray back to argue against God. It says that instead, Jonah rises and flees from the presence of God. God sends a storm to go after Jonah like an angry woman. She is relentless in her pursuit. The whole crew believes it is supernatural and are fearful of their lives. They do everything they can to, to survive. But it says that Jonah does nothing. He does not pray. He simply sleeps. The pagan crew prays. And the captain uh, implores this one particular person who is sleeping, why aren't you praying to your God while the rest of us are praying? And, you know, he's a prophet. That's his profession. He should have been praying, but he doesn't. He has to be reminded, and it says that he remained silent. They draw lots to figure out who the guilty one is, because obviously the gods are angry at them, and the lot points directly at, lot, uh, at Jonah. They ask him, what do you do? I'm a prophet. What have you done? Jonah could have at this time prayed or to repent, but he does not, but he suggests that they throw him overboard. He'd rather die than to pray. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think that Jonah did not pray? Through all of that, why isn't it that Jonah did not pray? And furthermore, I, th I, I would ask a further question. It's not that simply that Jonah didn't pray, but he refused to pray. Why is it that Jonah refused to pray? Um, and, and let me give you an illustration to, to give you what I think is a partial answer. A while back, I was in a seminary classroom, and they showed us a video of a young lady, and uh, her name, um, I'll say that she, her name is Alice, that's not her real name. She had spiky, blonde, brownish hair, and I, I remember, it was a while back, but she had rings on every finger. Uh, I don't know what that means, I don't know if that's rebellion or like fighting, but that's what she had. And she had this smile that, is, that was forced, almost fake. Have you ever met people who like, smiling by, you know, you can tell that's not genuine. And, and, and the smile is masking a pain. And she began to talk about her sister. How her sister uh, had, caught, um, had gotten caught up in drugs. And, and one day, apparently, someone suspected her sister to be a narc or an, uh, an informant. And so... A man broke into her apartment in the middle of the night, abused her, beat her, and murdered her. The body was so mutilated that when the family uh, came to identify, they uh, suggested that they don't look at the body. Alice said that her goodbye to her sister was to be able to hug the body bag. They, they caught the perpetrator the murderer, and he was sentenced. Uh, he was pronounced guilty and sentenced to death. Uh, their attorneys appealed, and a second judge 
reversed uh, the sentence and the murderer is in prison. Alice talked about how that impacted their family so much that his, her uh, brother became an alcoholic. He just couldn't deal with it. Her sister became so fearful that she refused to leave the home. She said with her forced smile, she's not angry, but she would want to see that man uh, tortured and executed for what he did to her sister. Life, in some ways, when we look to God, is like this. Uh, life is like a courtroom where there is a, um, oh, I forgot what section this is, the prosecution side and the defense side. The, the prosecution side, they're the ones who oftentimes were the victimized, and they're the ones who are uh, asking the judge, um, they're guilty, punish them. And they're appealing to the judge, saying, they're guilty, they've hurt me, punish them. The defense, what they're trying to say is this to the judge, I'm innocent, don't punish me, give me mercy. Does that make sense? That's how a criminal court case normally plays out, right? They're both looking to the judge, one who has power and authority to make a fair uh, judgment and either pronounce guilty and punish or pronounce innocence and, and have mercy or give freedom. A lot of us, even non-Christians, when they appeal to God, they appeal to God in that sense. Be fair or just or be merciful and loving. Okay? Now, let's go back to Jonah. I believe the way that he looked at God was that he and his people were victims of the cruel and torturous Assyrians. And when they saw God, they said, you are a just and holy God. You must bring a guilty verdict and punishment against those who are exceedingly wicked. Do you see? And when God told Jonah, now go and preached to them, he got the hint that God was going to be merciful to them. And that made Jonah angry. And I think that's why Jonah not only didn't pray, but refused to pray. It's like a little boy when, when mom tells him, no, no, you have to, you have to go. I don't want to. It's not fair. You didn't do that for my brother. No, no, you have to. And he gets along. That's not fair. He closes his arms turns his back on mom, that's not fair, and refuses to talk to mom. I think that's what was happening to Jonah. That when we look to God, we oftentimes, in, when we are wronged, and when we feel like we are right, we look to God as a judge, and we demand him to be just, especially those who have offended us. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed. The question is, if Jonah refused to pray, what caused a change? I believe the change occurred in the location. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. It said, from the belly of the fish. He literally was in a fish's stomach. He would be gasping for breath, being eaten up alive by the acid, probably injured from, scarred from the injuries that he received just even coming in. 
By the way, chapter 2, he, he wasn't writing his prayer while in the stomach of the fish. This is his recounting. That's why it's in the past tense some of the times. But he continues in verse 2 saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. So where he was in, was in the belly of the fish. Uh, why he was there and how he felt about it was that he was in distress distress, and he answered me. How he interpreted all of that, second half of verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Not only the fish, not only distress, he said, he interprets it in his mind as, I was in the belly of Sheol. Now, in, in the Old Testament, the term Sheol meant it was the place to which people descend at death. It is alternately uh, translated as grave, pit, listen carefully, hell. I think, you think about it, Jonah was gulping seawater, trying to survive. Next thing he knows, he's surrounded by hot membrane all around him after a traumatic entrance into whatever he the acid is burning his skin. He's gulping for air. I think Jonah thought he was dead or he was in hell being punished for his disobedience. When everything was put away, his religion, his goodness, his justification, his pride, all he had left was to look up from the depth and to pray. You know, sometimes we think that the best prayers are the most eloquent, are the long ones, and we think that the most uh, best prayers are prayers when we are in a position of righteousness. If you look at the New Testament or even the Old Testament, you look at people's prayers, and I tend to think that some of the best prayers are not when people are, are eloquent, worthy, or when they're in positions of strength, but rather it is when people are in, are in positions of desperation and in simplicity. You, you ever kind of look at the life of Jesus and, and look at the times when parents with sick children talk to Jesus. You know, mom and dads, you know that when our children are sick to the point of death, then our pride, pretentiousness all go away and we get desperate and sincere. Is that what happens? Look at when parents appeal to Jesus when their children are sick. A father had a son who uh, had constant seizures to the point where he's falling down, foaming at the mouth, rolling over, falling into fires. And he, the father comes to the disciples, can you heal him? They can't. And they, he meets Jesus, can you have compassion on him? And this father come, doesn't come from a position of strength or position of religion or faith. And he eventually says in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Peter, he saw Jesus walking on water and said, I want to be there with you. And he starts to walk on water and then he loses his focus and he starts to sink. And one of the most eloquent prayers, he said, Lord, save me. Some of the best prayers are prayers of desperation from the depth. You know, because I'm a pastor, people would periodically ask me, Pastor Steve, can you pray for me or my 
marriage or my family or my children or whatever, my business, whatever that may be. And oftentimes, you know, when they come to me, eventually they're already kind of serious about their prayer requests. And then if it's serious enough, or depending on what it is, I would ask them, um, you know, if it's a sickness, James chapter 5 says, uh, for that person to call the elders of the church so we can anoint that person, the sick person, with oil and, and, and pray for that, I would ask, do you want that? Or, it, it, or do you want me to ask the elders just to pray or the, the pastoral staff to pray? And so, sometimes people would say, oh, no. I, I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want to bother them. Or I would rather keep it confidential. Or, I, I, now, Pastor Steve, we got it. I, I got it. And I understand, you know, I'm kind of a, a private person too. And I wouldn't want my personal wrestlings, you know, made known to more than the people necessary. But it is when the, pri the problem becomes bigger than their competence. It is when their pain becomes greater than their pride. Those same people would say, Pastor Steve, can you ask the pastors and the elders to pray? Uh, you know, we'll go and be in a room and can you anoint with oil? When do we go from self-sufficiency to desperation to pray? It's when we realize that we can't do it on our own. And it's when we realize we're not good enough by ourselves. He prays from the depth and the place that he prays to is to the heights. We continue in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The waters, verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I believe this is what happened. Uh, Jonah went into the water, and he was just, he was swimming for a period of time, and and the weeds wrapped around him, and he, he was just basically drowning. And he's recounting that. The fact that he was uh, all being, being judged or punished for his disobedience, because in verse 3 it says, you cast me into the deep. Although it was the sailors who threw him overboard, it was, although it was his decision that they threw him overboard, he says, you're the one who cast me over uh, the side of the sea. And it is interesting what he says in verse 4. Do you remember what he was running from? Um, it said that continue, like three times in chapter 1 that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, right? His beef was not the Ninevites, really. His beef was with the Lord who was asking him to do something that he really didn't want to do. So he was fleeing from that. It, although it was Jonah who was fleeing from the presence of God in verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. It's you who drove me away. And the turning point is verse 4. Yet I shall look again upon your, this is important, holy temple. In verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayers came. Um, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, we don't quite understand this, but...
But in the Old Testament time, when Jonah wrote this, there was only one temple in Israel. And the Shekinah glory or the glory of God somehow physically existed, um, was there in the Holy of Holies in the, in the middle of the temple. So when the Jewish uh, believer or a prophet would think, where is God's presence most? They would think it's in the temple. So when God had chased after him, Jonah was fleeing from his presence, but when there was a turnaround, he longed to be in God's presence. You know, for most people, and for you, think about this. When you sin and are struggling from the consequence of sin, and you try to repent or confess, and you, you have an opportunity to pray, God, I'm so sorry. What is it that you're sorry about? What is it that you're saying, I really regret? And for majority of the time, for majority of the people, even Christians, the thing that we regret, the thing that we uh, don't like, have remorse over, is the consequence of sin. Is that I got fired, I got found out, whatever, I'm embarrassed, whatever that thing is. Or I let myself down, or I let other people down. For Jonah, he fled from the presence of the Lord, and the thing that he longed for was the presence of the Lord. And the reason being, and, and this is why I'm convinced that Jonah was not a, a disobedient or sinful prophet from the beginning, because he loved the presence of the Lord. He loved to be with the Lord. He had an intimate relationship with God. You know, one of the greatest chapters on repentance is found in Psalm chapter 51. If you ever need a prayer on how to repent, Psalm 51. Don't look at the, the repentance of people who, are, who don't know God. Look at the repentance of people who know God. David was a man after God's own heart. He, he loved God, and Psalm, a lot of the psalms are written by him, beautiful prayers. But he's a man also who just had a difficult time controlling himself. He committed what we call royal rape with Bathsheba. She had no choice. And he had her husband murdered in a pretentious way. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Eventually, a holy man, Nathan, confronts him and says, you're the man, you're the one. David breaks down. He, he, uh, the child that Bathsheba had in her womb, and he, the child dies shortly after she, the child was born. Later on, um, sometime along this period, he pens Psalm 51. It's a deep prayer of confession. In the midst of it, Psalm 51, verses 11 and 12, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. For David, the most painful consequence of his sins was that he had lost the presence of the Lord. And what he wants to have restored is the joy of his salvation. You know, David could have prayed a lot of other things like we would have, Lord, Restore to me my reputation, which I've completely lost. Everyone knows. Restore to me trust in my, my generals. 
which I've broken. Restore to me um, a, a longer tenure as king. But he didn't do any of those things. Said the thing that I am most brokenhearted is that I am far from you. Jonah continues in verse 6. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land, yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, my, oh Lord, my God. It's not after I've uh, repented and gone to Nineveh and made everything right in restitution. It's not that. It's somehow while I was swimming in the water, you brought me up, uh, brought up my life from the pit. And I think in some ways, Jonah saw the, the, the great fish as a part of his salvation plan. And God initiated that. And verse 8, and I used to think that this was kind of a throwaway verse that had very little meaning. But now I look at it, it has deep meaning. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols, okay? He's categorizing people as those who pay regard, those who place a great deal of importance on idols. Idol is what we have preeminent in our heart. It's the, it's the thing that we trust. It's the thing that we lean on but are empty. And that thing that we lean on could be our own self-righteousness or our own religion or our own heart justification. And I think he's categorizing himself that there was a time when I had leaned on vain idols. It was that time when you, you told me to go and preach to the Ninevites, but I thought they were sinful. They needed to be pronounced guilty. And I was right in my own justification. But those are empty. But when they do that, when I did that, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. That when we lean on our idols, we forsake steadfast love. Now, the term steadfast love in Hebrew uh, has the root word chesed. Chesed. It is a word in Hebrew that is untranslatable in English. And so when Bible interpreters uh, try to figure out a word, uh, they use much, a lot of different words or, uh, or combinations of words. And oftentimes, the word um, hesed is often translated as loving kindness. They just made up a word, loving kindness. It's also translated as compassion, mercy, and steadfast love. Surely, in Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and hesed shall follow me all the days of my life. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the, the chesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Chesed is not a conditional love. It's not um, something that God does because we were good, but because simply God said that he would love us. It does not depend on the goodness of the one being received, but the goodness of the one who is giving it. Jonah finishes his prayer in verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation ultimately belongs to God. I, I will do what I need to do, give thanks. I will uh, repay my vows, but ultimately, salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time. I think most of us, even Christians, if we see the world as a cosmic courtroom, we see ourselves in the seat of the prosecution. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but when you think about the world and as we appeal to God, 
and we say to God, I've been injured, I've been hurt. Those people over there, they are wicked, exceedingly wicked and, and, and have hurt me. Pronounce them guilty and pronounce judgment against them. And I believe that's how Jonah started. And that's why he was so angry. But listen, somewhere along the way, in the depth, he realized, no, I, I was not on the prosecution side. I was on the defendant side. I was actually accused. I'm the one in sin. And I was guilty. And if I had demanded God to be just and fair the whole time, now he realized he had to appeal to the chesed of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. We need both God to be just and merciful. Um, Jonah didn't quite understand this, but we do, you and I, that the only way God could be both uh, just and merciful is when Jesus Christ, who chose to uh, bear the penalty of all of our sins on his body so that we, we would not have to, so that he can be both a just God, say you're guilty, but a loving God, but I will take your sins onto my body. 